Alexandra listened to her sandals echoing on the cobbles, running down the narrow side streets of the Agora. They mingled with the sounds of the campfires of the Spartan enemy she could hear not far from the Diplin gate. It was rare she could hear herself think these days, let alone her own footsteps. Since the siege began, horse had crowded into Athens and space to move around or even to live in had become impossible. As she walked into the Panathenaic Way, she could see people from the outlying villages crammed up against the walls, their makeshift tents doing their best to contain what little they brought with them. Not that anyone had much now. Food was scarce and the street traders were demanding half your life's work for even a platter of olives. And the smell. As she made her way towards the Acropolis, the throngs became denser and denser, and she began to push on the smalls of the backs around her, leaning into the bodies with her shoulders. There was something else here too, scattered around the crowd, as loud as the footsteps or the noise of the enemies outside. The distant sound of coughing, here from the old man next to her, over there in the young girl being carried on her father's shoulders by the trader trying to force his way along the wall, all coughing, spluttering, resonating around the street. And it was then, in the heat of their sunlit city, that her head started to spin and her forehead began to burn. Welcome to Athens in the 5th century BC and to the third season of the Future Makers podcast. I'm Professor Peter Milliken, and over the next 10 episodes, I'd like you to join me on a journey through the history of pandemics. We'll be looking at 10 major outbreaks, from the plague of Athens to the West African Ebola outbreak via the Black Death, Cholera and smallpox asking how these outbreaks have shaped society, what we may be able to learn from them today, and where we might be headed. Today, we join a crowded city in the midst of a siege, where my colleague, Professor Tim Rood, picks up our story. The Peloponnesian War was fought between 431 and 404 BC, between the Athenians and the Spartans and the Allies on both sides. The Athenians were a great naval power. They ruled over many islands in the Aegean, whereas the Spartans and their Peloponnesian allies were a great land power. The Athenians were adopting a very unusual tactic. Their leader, Pericles, their most powerful politician, had a policy where he was gathering together all of the people from the territory of Attica within the city walls of Athens and not resisting these invasions by land. So he was letting the enemy roam through Athenian territory and destroy agricultural land. He was relying on Athens's naval power to bring in supplies and to, to, to survive, to, to show that Athens could win through against the, these land invasions. The result of this was that the city of Athens was much more packed with people than would usually have been the case. There would have been people spread over with the city. There were people living in uh, what were normally uh, sacred areas. So it was a much more packed environment than usual. And so particularly hospitable for the onset of plague. In my own studies of past authors, Ascertaining the validity of historical records has often proved to be a challenge. So I asked Tim, how accurate is our source for this period? Our main source 
facts for the Peloponnesian War is Thucydides. Thucydides was an Athenian. He was perhaps about 30 years old when the war started. He was from a an upper strata sort of of Athenian society. He became a general, a a strategos, in the early stages of the war and was subsequently exiled by Athens owing to some misfortunes during his period of command. So he was writing a contemporary history of a war which was going on in which he himself had taken part. And he, in a sense, our whole vision of the Peloponnesian War rests on him. Um, Thucydides has always been incredibly highly regarded as a historian. He made this incredibly bold claim in his introduction that he was writing this history not as some kind of competition piece for the moment, for immediate hearing, but as a possession forever, a possession that could be used at any time in the future. And he had a view of a sort of universal human nature where similar kind of events could happen in the future. And his account would enable readers to understand, if not perhaps to prevent those events. And that interest in uh, the recurrence of events is also very pertinent for his view of the plague, because he also imagines the recurrence of a disease of of that sort in the future. Thucydides mentions the onset of the plague in the second year of the war. His narrative is divided up just by seasons, winters, summers, years. And it's in the beginning of the second year that the plague arrives. He describes rumors that it has come down from Ethiopia, through Africa, through Egypt, and then across the territory of the Persian Empire, uh, the island of Lemnos in the Aegean, and then it hits Athens in the port of Piraeus and travels up from there towards the main city around the Acropolis. Uh, So he describes it as a very sudden onset, which has an immense effect at Athens. It coincides with one of the Peloponnesians' annual invasions, the, uh, the second of their invasions. And there are some rumors, he reports, that the Peloponnesians have somehow poisoned wells in the Piraeus and have caused this disease, a sort of conspiracy theory. But mainly he he stresses the suddenness, the actual, the very word he uses to describe the onset of the plague is that it sort of strikes down on the city a bit like a lightning bolt. So it's a real sudden event and it falls on the city from outside. There's a lot of debate as to whether this outbreak was a plague at all, which we'll discuss later. But I wondered how our author Thucydides describes the disease that hit his city. He offers a single account of the plague where he gives an account of the symptoms, the the bodily symptoms. People in perfect health suddenly began to have burning feelings in the head. Their eyes became red and inflamed. Inside their mouths there was bleeding from the throat and tongue and the breath became unnatural and unpleasant. The next symptoms were sneezing and hoarseness of voice. And before long, the pain settled on the chest and was accompanied by coughing. Next, the stomach was affected with stomach aches and with vomiting of every kind of bile that has been given a name by the medical profession, all this being accompanied by great pain and difficulty. Um, He describes uh, how it starts in the head with a fever, with inflamed eyes. Um, It travels down, the throat becomes bloody, the 
breath becomes foul, people sneeze, they, there's hoarseness, hits their chests, they cough, their stomachs become upset, they retch. And he describes the external symptoms on their body. Um, there are sores. They feel not hot to touch on the outside, but inside they feel a fever. And Thucydides doesn't know this only by observing others, but from his own personal experience. So when Thucydides says that he's going to describe what sort of disease it was so that people could recognize it in the future, he says that he's going to often account having himself fallen sick from the disease and also having seen other people suffering it. And that's all that he says. So he doesn't describe what was particular to him. He simply says he caught the disease, but he is clearly making his account more authoritative by appealing to this notion that he had himself suffered it. We don't know how badly he had it. We don't know what the lasting effect on him was. The problem with Thucydides' description of the symptoms is that they're similar to many different diseases and there's been long debate about what disease it could be. It's possible, of course, that diseases have changed over time. There's also, of course, a question about how one defines a plague. I mean, clearly Thucydides means by this a very bad kind of disease. He's clearly not, uh, you know, we have an, an, an idea of a plague like in the bubonic plague. We have other, uh, other diseases. Typhus, typhoid, smallpox. There have been all sorts of attempts to explain what disease this was. There's also, of course, the possibility that this is describing um, the symptoms of more than one disease. There could have been one main disease and, and other illnesses as well. At least the disease is just grouping all of these together under this one label. And he, in a sense, is not so much interested in the question of how you label this disease. Even in terms of his account of the symptoms of it, uh, at one stage he refers to all the different sorts of bile that are named by doctors. And he uses that as a, as a kind of shorthand to refer to this much more specialist type of discussion where doctors pin down names on particular bodily fluids or particularly bodily emissions. He himself is not interested in so much in that. He's interested in portraying this as a single overpowering illness that fell on Athens and in describing the consequences rather than in uh, the particular naming or particular causes of this disease. Medical researchers today are also sceptical as to whether this was a plague at all. Hi, I'm Dr. Ronger Guti. I work at the University of Oxford at the Oxford Vaccine Group as a clinical research fellow and I'm also an academic clinical fellow in infectious diseases. The Plague of Athens was estimated to have killed around 100,000 people. There are about 30 different pathogens that are thought to have caused the symptoms during this outbreak. The symptoms were fever, redness and inflammation in the eyes, coughing, vomiting, sometimes loss of voice, sneezing, postules and ulcers on the body, extreme thirst, which is quite unusual, insomnia, and in some cases, diarrhea. These are all quite non-specific, and the main candidate pathogens that it could have been are typhus, typhoid, a viral hemorrhagic fever such as Ebola, smallpox is also something that has been brought up probably because of the postules on the body and the ulcers, also measles because of the rash. However, none of the hallmarks of the true plague caused by Yersinia pestis are really mentioned a lot in the literature, such as the buboes, which are quite iconic 
And so a lot of scholars don't believe that Yersinia pestis was the cause of the plague of Athens. And now, Professor Brian Angus, the director of the Oxford Centre for Clinical Tropical Medicine and Global Health. Talking about the plague of Athens, smallpox certainly could be um, something because viral infections move very rapidly uh, amongst people. Typhus tends to be more related to still outbreaks in war and refugee situations, and we still see that, um, particularly in East Africa. And even with some of the refugee people coming into Europe, we can still see cases of typhus. But it's usually related to a lack of hygiene and ability to access um, clean water and clean clothes and things like that. For the classic epidemic typhus, it's a thing called Rickettsia proboscidei, and it's usually spread by lice. And in fact, I, I was at a conference of entomologists who are really interesting people. They started the conference by saying, who here checked their bed last night um, to see if there were any bed bugs? And everyone had checked their bed for bed bugs, which I thought was an interesting thing. So what they described is that lice, in fact, are diseases of clothes. So the, the eggs are in the clothes and it's the clothing that's the thing that helps to transmit it. You very rarely find the lice on the body. They come in and feed but then they go back to the clothes again and they lay the eggs in the clothes. So, so if you're thinking about the epidemiology and how these things sort of spread, smallpox you would expect would have spread person to person, because it was a very, very infectious thing person to person. Whereas something like typhus, probably there'll be an intermediate and it may be related to, to contact with contaminated clothing. But smallpox I think would be fairly well described, so I don't think smallpox. And typhus, I, I really think again, is a fairly well-described disease, and I don't, it doesn't sound particularly like typhus either. One of the things that crossed my mind quite a lot is that Ebola certainly would fit the description, even for the plague of Athens. And I think that one of the readings I had was that it seemed to be related to spread with funerals. And again, funeral practices seem to be quite a niche for epidemics to, to really take off. And of course with Ebola, that was certainly the case that it was the washing of bodies of people who died of Ebola that was leading to outbreaks in the, the families. And then of course someone else would die, which would lead to further funeral, which would lead to further um, propagation of the disease. A lot of the signs and symptoms do sound viral. I just don't feel like a viral hemorrhagic fever could have caused all of this. Or I think the damage would have been a lot, a lot worse. But then again, the estimations of the number of people that have died are hardly likely to be accurate. You do wonder, I think, as I say, I think it's one of the readings I had was I said that it seemed to be spread by funerals of the plague of Athens. And again, from the kind of investigation point of view, these sort of RNA viruses, these little viruses, are quite unstable. So trying to find something like Ebola in even bones and things uh, from that time would be very difficult. You wouldn't expect it to possibly show up. You know, people would have spotted these things if there was a water supply that was contaminated. They would have described those things. And I don't think that they did. It did seem to be very much kind of person to person. And Ebola is the, is the classic thing. The viral hemorrhagic fevers are very much transmissible. Um, and transmissible to healthcare personnel, which is why we get so uptight about them. <laughs> In my reading about this outbreak, I'd been fascinated by the way the role of doctors was described. And I asked first Tim and then Nicolette D'Angelo 
a classicist at Oxford specialising in ancient medicine, to tell me more about how medical practice would have worked at this time. The fifth century saw the rise of what we call the Hippocratic School of Medicine, named after a doctor Hippocrates of Kos. And so we know that there were many doctors who travelled in the Greek world. We have some of their writings. They um, offered detailed descriptions of disease. So we have a, a treatise called the Epidemics, for example, which describe individuals' symptoms on a day-by-day basis. We know that these doctors also described the causes of disease. So they looked at uh, features like climate, uh, changes of seasons, the uh, importance of changes of hot and cold elements within the body, for example. So there was a lot of uh, speculative medicine in the 5th century. There was no advanced uh, health service. There were no great public hospitals or anything like this. This was very much just private doctors uh, advertising themselves, promoting themselves as people who could offer cures. Thucydides presumably knew the writings of some of these doctors, but he states that in the plague itself that doctors had no cure they died themselves because of their ignorance of the nature of the disease. At the beginning, the doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease because of their ignorance of the right methods. In fact, mortality among the doctors was the highest of all, since they came more frequently in contact with the sick. Nor was any other human art or science of any help at all. He also makes a broader point about people who cared for sufferers dying in particularly strong numbers. This is part of his presentation that says nothing is of any use against this overpowering disease. So some people turn to doctors, other people turn to the gods and they offer sacrifices. None of this is of any use. Nothing is of any use. While the doctors weren't professionalized in the same way that we professionalized doctors, they're definitely were, you know, assembly appointed positions, um, especially in the large cities. You kind of get the idea when you're reading Hippocrates that there wasn't really a shortage of doctors and if anything, there was actually intense competition. And during, you know, an anatomical demonstration or a rhetorical display of your prowess, which you would be doing as a way to kind of build up business for yourself before you would do like a home visit, um, you know, there was this idea that a rival could sabotage you and it was kind of the survival of the fittest. So. There are definitely, you know, doctors around. The degree to which doctors were legitimate um, or not kind of depended on this idea of like public perception of celebrity, but there's some evidence that, you know, the people of, you know, a large polis like Athens would have to would have to vote someone like a public doctor um, into, into office, let's say, even though there's not the same level of, um, you know, uh, let's say acad academic examination. A key word etymologically um, that can help us understand this is the word techne, which in ancient Greek is a very complicated word that has no direct translation into English. You could say the art, the science, the skill, the craft. If you say something like the art of medicine, that kind of conveys the meaning. Um, and especially uh, Hippocratic doctors had this um, conception of the techne uh, as almost the platon platonic form of medicine itself, which physicians slowly but surely grasp in their training and practice. There's that very famous saying, the art is long, life is short, and opportunity is fleeting, normally translated into Latin as uh, ars longa, vita brevis. Um, basically, this techne or art was 
It was central to the identity and self-concept of physicians in a profound way and definitely set them apart from who they viewed to be charlatans and sophists because you know not all doctors were created equal in this time but that doesn't mean that it set um the techne of medicine away from the techne of you know any other thing at this time so there's the techne of poetry there's the techne of woodworking and all of these techniques kind of um, are seen to, you know, philosophically, especially um, in platonic dialogues, proceed along um, similar premises of, of expertise um, and mastery. So I, I would say that that distinction between art and science, um, while it definitely emerges eventually, it's kind of one of the roadblocks um, of the modern mind, I think, from fully understanding ancient medicine and I would say this relates to the plague of Athens because people have a tendency to view you know the first-hand account of Thucydides who himself experienced um, the plague as he describes in the history of Peloponnesian War you know people view that as kind of like the cultural historical soft account of the disease and then they look to something like the Hippocratic uh, treatises or other medical explanations as being the hard or objective or you know medical explanations but you know Thucydides himself talks quite a lot about doctors in his account he also says um, you know neither uh, were the doctors able to help nor did any human techne do any better so there's this idea in the kind of complete failure of society that medicine is not really a privileged um, you know it's not really a, a privileged explanation for what's going on in the way that we would consider it. Although Thucydides is writing, you know, explicitly so that people in the future might be able to learn something from his account. And some of those people might well be doctors or they might be lay people. In the context of our own pandemic, surrounded as we are by frequent news coverage around themes like contagion, immunity, and mortality rate, I was fascinated to hear more about how our source described these concepts at the time. There are two features of Thucydides' account which offer, in some ways, a departure from anything we find in the contemporary doctors. One of those is recognition of contagion, and I've mentioned that already in the, in the sense that people who cared for sufferers and doctors themselves were more likely to catch the disease. The other feature that he notes is what we would call acquired immunity. He notes that those people who had caught the plague never got it again in a dangerous way. At least he doesn't say that they were immune from it in future, but that they never got ill again in a bad way from this disease. He doesn't offer a total figure for the number of people who died from the plague, when he returns to it at a later stage in the war, he says that it first of all lasted for two years, then there was a remission for a year, and then it returned. And at that point, he gives a uh, figure for the number of dead, um, but he doesn't have a figure for the total number of the Athenian people, precisely because he says he couldn't find that out. It's very much a sort of class-based type of figure he gives of the wealthiest people, the so-called the cavalry, uh, 300 of them died, uh, 4,000 of the hoplites, people who had the wealth to arm themselves with 
um, weapons and strong uh, shields and, and armor. But he says it was impossible to discover the total number of people who died. He does at one stage say that in one of the Athenians' armies, not at Athens but elsewhere in the Greek world, at Potidaea in northern Greece, at one stage within 40 days, 1,050 out of 4,000 hoplites died. So that's just one example. From his figures, people it's, uh, normally thought that perhaps a quarter of the Athenian population died. The population of Attica at that time would have been in the order of 250 to 300,000 people, probably. In our pandemic today, there's been a huge amount of societal impact. I was keen to discuss further with Tim and Nicolette how life in Athens changed during this outbreak. Through these moves on from giving his detailed description of the bodily symptoms of the plague, he offers a sort of sociological analysis of the effect of the plague, um, in a sense, on what we would call the body politic. Um, he describes an increase in lawlessness. The catastrophe was so overwhelming that men, not knowing what would happen next to them, became indifferent to every rule of religion or of law. And he, first of all, offers for specific examples of this in terms of burial practices. So he says that burial customs began to be disregarded. So people, if they had a corpse, if they saw a pyre that was prepared for someone, they would just put the corpse they had on that and set light to that pyre. And even, he says, if they saw a pyre with a corpse burning on it, they would just throw the body they had on it. So this is what he's, he's describing all this as a sort of sign of the collapse of standards in Athens, all of it set in contrast with the very kind of orderly image of Athens that he's presented through the account of the funeral oration and the public burial of the war dead. The real fear in that text is your neighbor almost. Thucydides describes how people who potentially could have been cured and who were almost seemingly responsive to treatment died because they were neglected, shut up in their homes, uh, because people were too afraid to go and see them. Now, I think a lot of people who would be eager to say that, you know, the ancients knew more about um, pathogens that they let on would say, oh, look, they knew that something like a plague is spread by contact. I think there is a bit of an inkling um, of that awareness and it actually shows us a limitation of medicine at the time because the reticence of the Hippocratic material to talk about the plague because they cannot fully explain it, especially they cannot fully explain the cause, means there's never really speculation, whereas Thucydides is, is kind of skeptic. He says, you know, I'll let, I'll let people in a later time explain what happened, but I at least could see that doctors died in a larger concentration because they were around patients, people who were shut up um, during the hottest time of the year, who were in close quarters died at large concentrations because presumably of contact. I think we actually see a very uh, proximal sort of fear. As we all become ever more aware of the broad range of effects a pandemic can have on the physical and mental health, even of those not directly infected, I was curious as to whether an ancient author would have picked up on these effects as well. Besides offering that specific example about burial, he offers a kind of psychological portrait on the effect it had on people's attitudes. The most terrible thing of all was the despair into which people fell when they realised that they had caught the plague. 
for they would immediately adopt an attitude of utter hopelessness, and by giving in in this way, would lose their powers of resistance. Because people no longer had confidence in how long they were going to live, because people, as they looked around, saw these extreme sudden changes of fortune, rich people would suddenly die, poor people would suddenly inherit the fortunes of those wealthy people. No one had any sort of security. They no longer, he says, kept to their previous sense of honor. They just began to turn to pleasure, to live for the moment while they were alive. It's a very drastic type of vision. It's something which is we can't really see borne out by any other source. Uh, as you look at the contemporary comedies, for example, you wouldn't really have a sense of this total kind of subversion of morality that this of these describes. It does play to his overarching kind of theme of why Athens loses the war. He sees a, a collapse in Athens's political leadership of the, during the war as they move away from Pericles, who always put the city first, to later leaders who supposedly were much more self-interested uh, than Pericles himself and began taking risks on their own behalf. They began risking the city's well-being for their personal motives. This got me thinking that many philosophers have drawn an analogy between bodily health and the health of a society. Perhaps most famously, Plato in his Republic suggests that just as a well-ordered mind should be governed by reason, with spirit and appetite subordinate to it, so a well-ordered society should be divided into three classes governed by philosopher guardians. Now, Plato himself was born in Athens during the Peloponnesian War, and he sets the Republic at that time. So I wondered if Thucydides, in a similar sort of way, saw any analogy between the Athenian plague's impact on the health of individual people and its impact on the health of the society. The Greeks had a common imagery of sick and healthy cities, and Thucydides is appealing to this in his whole sort of analysis of the effects of the plague and in the kind of parallels that he draws between how the plague disturbs the internal life of cities and his later account of how civil war within cities uh, affects the well-being of cities throughout the whole Greek world. So he offers these two parallel analyses of the disruption created in during the war. On the one hand, there is the plague, which falls from outside. On the other hand, there is civil war, what he calls stasis, which he talks about in terms of showing the constant features of human nature. So that, that is something which happens to humans from within whereas the plague falls from without. But both of these are sort of diseases which fall on cities and disturb the health and well-being of those cities. So this really brings us into the heat of the plague of Athens, I think, which terminologically in ancient Greek was called aloimos. And now that is a word that technically in classical scholarship would be translated as petulance. But, you know, for our purposes, we could just say plague. So this word is very important and very different from the terms like epidemic and pandemic we use today, despite the fact that both those words are Greek-derived etymologically. What's first remarkable about loimos is that it seems like a really general term to me. You know, it's used by people like Thucydides who witnessed 
or survive the disease, much like us today, who did not know what the disease was, where it came from, what caused it, what cures it. So in this way, aloimas is a general word that carries with it both a sense of uncertainty in, in, in the broad strokes, but also a sense of precision and context. It kind of reminds me how, you know, when you say um, COVID-19, it means something very specific to us in this moment. And there are, of course, symptoms we associate with it, but that does not mean we understand it at all. And I found that sometimes you're talking to someone and you're talking about, you know, the pandemic and they'll use like really vague phrases. You know, they'll say, oh, I was supposed to go visit my family until all of this happened or everything going on in the way got in the way or, oh, you know, the things going on with the virus when obviously we know coronavirus is not the only virus. Um, it's very general. It's not the same thing, but I see a sort of parallel in terms of how the Greeks used loimos um, with kind of a sense of humility uh, in the way that we use uh, general phrases about things that we don't quite grasp. So because of this kind of sense of uncertainty and also uh, religious association, which I'll get into, in the medical material of the period, especially the Hippocratic Corpus, the, the word loimos is pretty infrequent. And most scholars say rightly that the end of loimos from a perspective can only really be brought about by driving out miasma, um, which means pollution, defilement. Um, it, it kind of comes from an image of, of blood staining, and that's um, why it's probably most frequent in tragedy of any genre. And so basically to drive out the miasma, there is kind of implied a religious process of purification um, that would have to occur. And while I said earlier that in the Hippocratic material, there's a sense of the sacred in every disease, they definitely did not want to be limited to thinking that diseases were only sacred and that only purifications could cause um, healing. Nonetheless, I think it's interesting to look at maybe a passage where miasma is used in the Hippocratic, and loimas, you know, are used in the Hippocratic corpus because over time we see it kind of assimilated from the religious and legal to the medical context to mean something about how the air is polluted. And I think that's pretty, pretty similar to something that we might talk about when we're talking about fears of catching coronavirus from someone else. You see these uses for the plague, on the one hand, the word nosos, which is the ordinary Greek word for disease or sickness. So that is a kind of much milder word. He also uses a stronger word loimos, which is a stronger word for plague. It's the word which Homer uses in the Iliad for the disease which Apollo sends on the Achaean camp at Troy. It's a word which is interesting because he mentions an oracle that some of the people remembered during the plague and this was an oracle that at some point there would be a Dorian war, that is a war against the, the Dorians, the Spartans, and along with this war there would be a loimos, a plague. And the reason Thucydides mentions this is that these people thought that this oracle was being fulfilled in the war. Just as some people now look back to novels people wrote 20, 25 years ago where they predicted some great contagion. Um, but Thucydides comments that, that there are two different versions of this oracle. In one, it had the word loimos, plague. In another, it had the word limos, which means famine. And so he says that if at some point there was a war and a famine happened, people would remember the oracle differently. So this is kind of appealing to his kind of psychological interest in how people's whole perceptions, even their memory, are affected 
by their circumstances. So is Thucydides our only source for this event? I checked with Tim on what other written information we might be able to gather from this period. In addition to Thucydides, we have mainly second-hand later sources, uh, writers like Plutarch, who was writing lives of some of the powerful politicians at the time, including Pericles. And Plutarch does report for us uh, some important additional bits of information which are not found in Thucydides. It is only from Plutarch, for instance, that we learn that Pericles himself died of the plague, apparently. Um, and then there are a number of other later historians who are mainly, as I say, second-hand historians who don't really add that much to what Thucydides says. Um, there are, in addition, uh, contemporary uh, comic plays, uh, written by uh, surviving plays by writers like uh, Aristophanes in particular, which give us some idea of the state of Athens in the course of the war. But Aristophanes doesn't really doesn't mention the plague at all. Probably it was a topic which is not really suitable for the type of play he was writing, comedies. Um, we also have surviving tragedies, but these tragedies took as their subjects the uh, material episodes from the heroic past, what we view as kind of Greek myth. And so they naturally don't treat the plague, except they do use plague as an image, as a metaphor. So, for example, in Sophocles' famous play, the Oedipus Tyrannos or Oedipus Rex, there is a plague at Thebes right at the beginning, um, described right at the beginning of the play, um, a result of the pollution in the land caused by Oedipus. It's no surprise that the disease had a pretty devastating impact on the people of Athens in the year 429, and for some time afterwards. But were there longer-term consequences? And can we learn anything from them relevant to our situation today? I first asked Tim and then Nicolette for their thoughts. It's hard to tell from Thucydides exactly what the sort of consequences are. Yes, we know from the later sources that Pericles seemingly died of the plague. Pericles' death was calamitous for Athens because later leaders, on his view, were less good. Thucydides also describes how during the plague there was a reaction against Pericles in terms of people blaming him. So that whereas in the first year of the war, people were blaming Pericles for not leading them out to fight the Spartans, not defending their land. In the second year, they're beginning to blame him for the fact that they're at war at all and that, and that they are cooped up in the city and suffering from this plague. And Thucydides describes them as pushing for peace they're, and they're wanting to send to the Spartans. They're wanting to make peace with Sparta. And Pericles is standing up on Thucydides' portrayal against this very irrational wavering by the Athenians. So Thucydides has a portrayal of the Athenian masses as kind of being very variable, as giving in to circumstances, whereas Pericles, in a sense, stands above those. And Pericles has already, at the beginning of the war, predicted that people might change their views about him, but he has always said that he himself keeps to the same policy, that they need to resist the Peloponnesians. So in a sense, Thucydides is portray portraying Pericles as a model of a kind of strong leadership that is standing up to the emotions of the people, uh, whereas the later leaders 
on in his representation much more give in to the whims of the people uh, and don't lead them so much as being led by them. So the plague is important for Thucydides' view of Pericles and Pericles' leadership. It is that Pericles addresses it as the, the big single kind of unexpected thing that has hit Athens during the war. Pericles is presented by Thucydides as being full of foresight. He can anticipate things, but this is the one thing that he cannot anticipate. I don't think one can go beyond that and draw any real comparisons with modern leadership, just as I think one can't really go beyond the city's description and compare the social effects of the diseases with the social effects of the current pandemic. Um, I think we're dealing with really very different uh, worlds. Thucydides is uh, portraying people as a result of the plague doing things they normally wouldn't have done. Um, they're breaking the new normal social barriers. Whereas at most what we've seen in the current pandemic are isolated instances of people doing what they normally like to do, but what they've been told by their leader not to do. Clearly Athens had a reduction in the number of soldiers who were available, um, but we don't really have any precise sort of figures. And in terms of the sort of uh, strategy Athens was pursuing, it didn't make so much difference given that what Athens was mainly doing was trying to just uh, survive in this war and resist the Peloponnesian attack. So they, given that they, they weren't going out to face the Athenians. And in fact, Paradoxically, we do see a few years after the plague, we see a sort of recovery when Athens is, is, is able to capture a number of Spartan soldiers, and that has a real important effect on the course of the war. And at that stage, Athens even resists an offer of peace from the Spartans in 425 BC. Um, so Athens, in a sense, was able to carry on, and as the Thucydides portrays it, got uh, carried away and began becoming too aggressive and becoming too expansionist. Um, in the long term, Thucydides tells us that there were that uh, Athens did finally begin to make up some of the losses in the plague, um, but he tells us this uh, just in the moment when Athens is launching its most disastrous foreign effort of all, which is its attack of, on Sicily in 415 BC. And at that stage, he says that Athens had now recovered from the plague. And he tells us this because Athens is just about to squander that through what proves to be the most disastrous episode in the war. But for the most part, it's actually, it's quite hard to piece together in a particularly clear way, the kind of precise consequences of the plague for the course of the war. People lately are kind of finding a bit more hope where his deal seems to be kind of challenging a sense of invulnerability in Athens, the idea that um, they're an exceptionalist class, especially the citizens there, um, which might be called hubristic, to use a Greek word. So the, the question of how we remember a pandemic to me seems kind of more interesting than how bad it was, because in the large scheme of things, obviously there will be another one, there will be another one. When I look at Thucydides, it seems kind of it, it almost seems kind of short-term. I mean, obviously, as much as a third of the Athenian population, though that's just the citizen population because those are the people who are accountable at this time, um, seems to have died. There's this really um, interesting discussion of how people 
you you know you quoted this part earlier people started kind of living for the now they saw rich people die and lose all of their property so what to do but snatch up that property while you're still alive which then you might die and it could fall to someone else there's this wheel of fortune idea um but you know the the systems falling apart in thucydides is not what we're seeing in our time you know we see billionaires making huge power grabs with you know those from where i'm from the us having become collectively like 650 billion dollars richer over the past few months as unemployment went through the roof so you know the lawlessness of what happens in thucydides i i find it interesting um, because there, it almost seemed permanently short-term where in our society, um, especially in the West, I feel like though the coronavirus originally was sold as a great equalizer moment, a lot of people were poised to gain according to social customs saying exactly how they always um, were, you know, the system functioning as it was meant to. So I, um, I think we'll always remember this time and it will be interesting to see um, you know, thousands of years from now, how people talk about us, kind of similar to how we're having this conversation about, you know, something that happened like 2,500 years ago. But um, I hope people point out that distinction that um, we will be seeing long-term effects of this coronavirus because of the, um, you know, the perseverance of our, our, of our institutions and ways of life, as opposed to the breakdowns of them. Next time on Future Makers, we travel nearly a thousand years forwards to the reign of Justinian I, for what many consider to be, in fact, the earliest plague pandemic. I hope you can join us then for the second stage of our journey through the history of pandemics. I'm Peter Milliken, and you've been listening to Future Makers. Future Makers was created in-house at the University of Oxford and presented by Professor Peter Milliken from Hartford College. Our voice actor today was Shauna Marie Latchman. The score for the series was designed and created by Richard Watts. And the series is written and produced by Steve Pritchard and me, Ben Harwood. Thank you, on behalf of the whole team, for listening to the History of Pandemics.